Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. So I want to start this week with a personal reflection. On my way to and from work at the Urban Institute every day, I pass by a guy who spends his days living in a tent parked on the sidewalk. And like most people, I pretty much hustle past without stopping or finding any direct ways to help. And honestly, I don't feel great about it, but that's the truth. Instead, though, I'm often left with this sense of dismay and an unresolved question lingers in my mind. Why can't we in the capital of the wealthiest country in the history of the world do better for our most vulnerable members of society? How have we come to a place where so many people are spending nights and weeks and even years on the streets without a roof over their heads? And of course, the reality is that this challenge of homelessness is not unique to D.C. It's an issue that cities across the country are working on. It could happen to anybody. Families staying in cars, in shelters, struggling to get their children to school. Is there a solution? What we are doing now is clearly not working. Lawmakers, cities, counties struggling to find answers. It's important to remember that homelessness can take different shapes. Most of the time, people experience homelessness in short periods of instability. But the man that I pass on my way to work would be called chronically homeless. That means he's been on the streets for at least a year. It's this population that's often the most vulnerable and the most challenging to help. In this episode and the next, we're going to take a close look at what one city, my hometown of Denver, Colorado, what they're doing to address chronic homelessness. The project, called the Denver Social Impact Bond Initiative, is a unique and promising and, dare I say, even exciting approach that brings together service providers, city officials, the police department, and others to focus on a single goal, getting people who are chronically homeless off the streets for good. So let's start with a basic point. If you've never been homeless, you probably don't even realize how hard it is. The process of being homeless makes you not only paranoid, but it makes you, um, what's the right word for it? Jaded. So stability is a thing that most people who are stable take for granted. When you're homeless, you're totally in survival mode. Where do I eat? Where do I sleep? Am I safe? When you're stable, those things matter, but not as urgent and not as, not as overwhelming. Rejection played a really good part in my life. So it just, it was very harsh for me. It is part of one of the reasons why I fell into crack addiction and just numbed myself. It was very hurtful and painful. I don't want to go through that anymore. So like everything I tried, I was, I felt rejected. So I just didn't want to move forward anymore. That's Malcolm and Maria. They're just two of Denver's nearly 1,000 people who experience chronic homelessness every year. 
Denver, like most cities, struggles with how best to help support these individuals and bring them off the streets. And Denver leaders knew that the status quo wasn't going to cut it. But tackling a complex issue like chronic homelessness is really hard and potentially really costly. Like, where do you even begin? Denver Mayor Michael Hancock talked to us about how the city first approached the challenge. I understand uh, what the systemic challenges are. You know, what are the underlying causes of what you're trying to solve? Um, and then what you want to work to attack those uh, underlying challenges uh, as part of your, your, your solution-driven approach to the problem um, that you're addressing. And there can be a lot of those kinds of underlying challenges. Physical and mental health issues and substance use disorder can lead to cycling in and out of jail, emergency care, and detox. For these people, stability is critical. Without a home and having their basic needs met, it's almost impossible to stay engaged in treatment and focus on those higher-level goals. Knowing this helped shape the way Mayor Hancock looked at the issue. Just this whole approach uh, made us step back and say, okay, wait a minute. We know it's not just about shelter. There's a broader, there's a, there's a systemic challenge here that, you know, if someone is, you know, dealing with a mental health impairment or they have a behavioral health challenge, like an addiction challenge, that may lead them to lose their job. It might lead them to lose their family or their housing opportunities, whether with their family, what have you. It may destroy their fam- familial relationships. We got to learn how A leads to B and B leads to C, and then ultimately we're dealing with them as a chronically homeless on our streets. At the same time, Regina Herter, who most people call Reggie, was the executive director of Denver's Crime Prevention and Control Commission and was coming to a similar realization. In 2012, she started keeping a list of the people who were most frequently arrested in Denver, and she found some interesting commonalities among the people on the list. The top 100 people all had this interesting pattern. They were all male. They were older population than we're used to, so ends up being average age of 48. And they all showed as being transient or homeless. And um, almost all the cases had something to do with alcohol. Reggie started connecting with staff in the local hospitals, detox centers, and shelters and found that they were basically the exact same people. But the problem was that no one was tracking these folks after they left. It's like, I don't think anyone has this population. I think everyone's providing services to them. I don't think anybody is really taking responsibility in managing this population. So you had judges that were seeing them come through. They could give you the list. You had these cops on the streets that were doing homeless services. They could give you the list. But everybody else was like, oh, yeah, they're just flipping. This list became known throughout Denver as Reggie's List and spoke to some of her biggest frustrations. She felt that Denver could do more to meet the deep-seated needs of the chronically homeless. Shame on on us of thinking that our current way of managing people with such high needs is to simply keep putting a Band-Aid on and pushing them through the system as if if they're just kind of widgets and not doing what we can do to actually stop that. Not only does chronic homelessness impact an individual's well-being, but it can also create challenges for cities with limited public resources. The cycle of people repeatedly entering jail, emergency care, and detox without addressing core physical and mental health issues, well, the costs can really add up. Reggie worked with service providers in Denver to calculate spending for the top 250 people on her list. The total was crazy high. Those 250 people cost the city approximately $7 million every year. So that really, I think, was 
was getting people to take it that, that A, there was a population out there that we assumed was being served and wasn't. B, that those costs were astronomical and we could do something different with them. And C, is that they had part of the shared responsibility of doing that. They had part of the shared responsibility of setting up something differently and that there could be wins and benefits from doing that. So Denver saw a chance to address the expensive, deep-rooted problem of chronic homelessness, but they also faced a dilemma that's familiar to most cities. Where would they get the money? The city budget was already tight and most of the dollars spoken for through other programs. After much deliberation, research, and careful thought, Denver took a unique approach. Enter the social impact bond. So what exactly is a social impact bond? Well, to start, it's not really a bond. It's an arrangement in which outside investors commit to paying for improved programs to better social outcomes and maybe even save the city money. Another term for this approach is pay for success. Yeah, so I mean, we really first started in the first half of the year just educating people about what is pay for success because it was right when there was really only one project in the U.S. and really only about two or three in the globe. So kind of just really making sure, especially the nonprofit community, was comfortable and knew exactly what the tool could be used for and what it was and what it wasn't. That's Tyler Jekyll, a former program director with the Harvard Kennedy School's Government Performance Lab. He came to Denver in 2013 to help explore the possibility of using pay for success. And with Tyler's help, Denver set up a project that helps finance supportive housing and key services for people struggling with homelessness, substance use disorder, and mental health problems. The goal? To help reduce Denver's population of people experiencing chronic homelessness by giving them a stable home and support while potentially saving the city money in the process. Um, I mean, I think all the evidence that you can see on what really leads to either better outcomes for individuals or reductions in kind of costly services is the combination of housing first or putting no pre-qualifications on someone entering housing and then assertive community treatment, which is that wraparound service model of providing a team of about 10 individuals of case managers, nurse practitioner, and psychologists. The pay-for-success model offers a really different way of thinking about this problem, and it marks a big change from the traditional ways of serving the chronically homeless population. Here's Sarah Gillespie, a senior research associate at the Urban Institute who helps lead the project's evaluation. So, right, most government programs and social service programs are focused on activities and services and, you know, how many people are you serving? What activities are you doing for them? That's really what most government contracts and grants pay for. And so the fact that this is completely focused on what are the outcomes of the services that you're providing and even a step beyond outcomes, what is the impact of that? So not just are people in housing, but does that mean anything in terms of are they spending fewer days in jail? That's, you know, huge and very different than a lot of supportive housing programs and other programs in general. Denver's Social Impact Bond Initiative targets a range of needs of people experiencing chronic homelessness. First, it puts an emphasis on placing people in supportive housing. The program has a housing first philosophy in which no requirements are placed on people moving in. Then, once they're in housing, the program provides them with a wide range of services, including everything from mental health treatment to cooking classes. Here's Tyler again. To really um, provide a client 
with all of the needs, particularly mental health needs, but it could be anything ranging from, I need to go get my groceries. That is really what um, has been proven to, to make the larger difference. So the pay for success model offered an innovative solution to a big challenge. Here's Mayor Hancock on how the city mapped out this initiative. If there were challenges, it really was just trying to understand how it would work. You know, how do you, you know, pay back your investors? You know, um, what, what benchmarks or bench points would you use to kind of determine what you were going to measure? Um, and so you can say, yeah, we have a savings because X number of our chronically homeless spent X number of days less in jail than they did previously and then how you quantify that. We understood that if we were able to figure this out, this would be extremely innovative. Innovative? Yes. Simple? Not at all. In a pay-for-success project, there are a lot of different players involved, and collaboration is the name of the game. First, the city had to find investors to help fund the project on the front end because no single city agency had enough flexible dollars to pay for the program up front. Here's Sarah Gillespie again. There's a lot of evidence to say that supportive housing can end this cycle of homelessness and jail use and other, you know, emergency system interaction. So there's this existing evidence base that says this intervention can fix the problem you're seeing in Denver, but no one partner at the table could pay for that intervention at the time. Denver ultimately partnered with investors who put in $8.6 million and brought a wide range of public service programs on board with the same goal, improving outcomes for the lives of this unique population. In August 2017, Denver opened a 60-unit apartment building, and in May 2018, it opened a 101-unit building downtown. Our goal was not to kind of test whether or not we can have a program succeed or fail on building construction. It was whether or not it succeeds on helping clients and really changing their lives. And the changes so far have been pretty significant. Here's a program participant that we'll call John on his arrival at his new apartment. It was excellent. It's like moving in the Carl Ritz or whatever. I mean, compared to what I was staying at, I'm like, oh my God, this place is awesome. All I had was my backpack, my sleeping bag, and my, my pillow when I sat against the wall. So I've built up since. Mayor Hancock says the program pulled a number of different groups in the city to work together. What you notice in our SIP program, there is a roster of partners. This is not an easy concept to pull off. Um, it is a very complex matrix, very complex matrix of uh, partnership that has to occur and lines of accountability. You know, I'm, I'm just impressed with the number of players that have had to come to, get, come to the table to advise, to guide, to take responsibility for certain elements so that we can not only implement the program, but measure the various variables that we're trying to measure as part of the program. The Urban Institute is on board as basically the project umpire. Urban researchers are evaluating the program and looking at how the project is being implemented and the impact it has on days in jail and housing stability for participants. As a result of the evaluation, we'll better understand the effectiveness of this housing program and the results will determine how much investors are repaid. And again, this is actually a pretty big deal in the housing world. Once this analysis is completed in 2021, it will be one of the longest, most rigorous evaluations in the country on the impact of the permanent supportive housing model. And that can influence future social policy and how dollars are spent. Here's Sarah. 
But I can say after seeing a lot of other pay for success projects, our we have a pretty robust role as the evaluation partner. We got to come in a year before the evaluation actually began. So we got to be a thought partner along with the city and the other partners at the table and determining, you know, who was going to be eligible for this intervention, what were the outcomes that we were going to measure, how would we decide if they'd been met or not. You know, a lot of those key decisions we got to be a part of, which set us up for a really strong evaluation. So why is it so important to evaluate this? Because so much is riding on the outcomes of the evaluation. So much depends on what the evaluation finds. And everyone needs to feel very confident that the evaluation is finding the true impact of the program and the true outcomes of the project. And the worst case would be for someone to have a lot of doubt or questions around the evaluation because that's going to determine you know, who gets paid and how much. So our role is to do the analysis, but then also to help everyone around the table interpret what it means in terms of the outcomes. The Denver project launched two years ago and is about halfway through the project's lifespan. So the big question is, is this pay-for-success program working? Like, is it enabling the city to pay for the most effective services and shift its spending from short-term band-aids to long-term sustainable solutions? What have been the experiences of city officials and service providers and people experiencing homelessness? Well, listener, you are clearly smart and asking all the right questions And we're excited to invite you back to listen to all of the answers in part two. Yep, that's right. This is a two-part episode. We'll be back next week to finish out the story on how Denver took its pay-for-success program from a concept to reality and how the program is playing out on the ground. For now, that's our show. To learn more about the Denver Social Impact Bond Initiative, you should really head over to our website at urban.org slash features and spend some time on this beautiful, in-depth piece that we put together. It includes pictures and other audio clips and a narrative on the Denver project. And it's really cool, very much worth your time and provides a lot more context of how this project came together and some of the individuals who are helping to drive this innovative effort. Again, that's www.urban.org slash features. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here's three things you need to know. One, chronic homelessness is a problem faced by people in cities across the country. People experiencing homelessness often struggle with mental health and substance use disorder and cycle in and out of jails and hospitals. And that cycle can drain a city's budget while not addressing the core problems at the root of the issues. Two, Denver decided to address chronic homelessness in a unique way by developing a pay-for-success project. That means outside investors committed to paying for improved social outcomes that save the city money. Denver's Social Impact Bond Project aims to help chronically homeless people get in supportive housing and provides key services to help them thrive. And three, Denver's Pay for Success program required a lot of effort on the front end. It involved coordination among dozens of stakeholders ranging from the city to providers to investors and more. And the Urban Institute was involved from the start as a thought partner and evaluator. So the question now is, is it working? Did it improve social outcomes and save the city money? Next week, join us again, and we'll get into how the program has played out on the ground. 
If you like the show, please tell your friends and help spread the word. Unfortunately, we don't have any pay for success program to get you to listen or to write reviews, but we would love it if you go on your Apple podcast or iTunes and give us some stars. We'll take five and leave a review. Thanks so much. Thanks to the Laura and John Arnold Foundation who support the Pay for Success initiative, a project that I lead and provided resources for the development of this episode. You can find more about the initiative's work at pfsi.urban.org. A huge thank you to producer Katie Smith, our sound editor Riley Byrne from Podigy.co, and the rest of the Urban team who helped put this Denver feature and the podcast together. This was a big effort and big thank you to Emily Pfeiffer, Veronica Gaetan, and Katrina Ballard. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.